0: This is Solid Foundation Ministries with Dr. Pierre Kuvert, building solid foundations through sound Bible teaching. Good morning and welcome back to Solid Foundation Ministries. This morning I want to talk about the faulty foundation of fundamentalism. Now, we are to be fundamental in our beliefs. That means that we believe what the Bible says and we try to follow it. In the early 20th century, however, there was a movement started which was called the Fundamentalist Movement. I want us to look at it and see how uh, it worked and what it really is. They have mostly been a departure from the doctrines that the apostles gave us in the New Testament. The seeds of Baptist compromise were actually sown during the Reformation. They didn't really germinate, though, until this fundamentalist movement came along. The goal of the fundamentalist movement was not something that was bad. It was a fight against the encroachment of modernism and liberalism into a fundamental or Bible-believing Christianity. They reasoned that the best way to uh, approach this thing was to put aside their doctrinal differences and join together. They formed a select committee of, and I quote, men who were known to be sound in the faith." They may have been sound in their faith, but they were not sound in the faith. They included Anglicans, Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, Baptists, and other denominations. They they were good men, but they differed on doctrine denominational differences, and we need to understand this, are doctrinal differences. The reason we have Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists is because we don't all believe the same thing. Our doctrine is different. The faith, however, is the doctrine that is revealed in scriptures. You cannot have doctrine that is different from what we have in scriptures and call yourself a true fundamentalist. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 42, we have what makes a true fundamentalist. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and in prayers. I want you to notice that steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, not in Martin Luther's uh, doctrine, not in Calvinist doctrine, not in in, uh, John Wesley's doctrine, but in the doctrine of the apostles. The Christians in Berea were fundamentalists because they received the word with gladness and they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. So a true fundamentalist searches the scriptures to see what is true and what is not true. The fundamentalist movement came out of what was called the Niagara Bible Conference. That had uh, meetings every year from 1876 till 1897, except I believe it was 1890 or 1888 that they did not have one. It was headed up by a pastor from St. Louis. It was J- uh, James H. Brooks. He was a Presbyterian minister. Presbyterians, folks, don't think too highly of Baptists and their principles. Listen to what Ray Sutton said in The Failure of the American Baptist Culture on page 152. This is published by the Geneva Divinity School, which is a Presbyterian school, and it came out in 1982. But it says, Baptist history theology and sociology must be presented its underlying presuppositions are devastating to civilization did you hear that they believe that what we as baptists believe is devastating to civilization they came up to doctrine by subtraction the niagara bible conference boiled doctrine down to fourteen points These were 14 things that they needed to believe. Now, let me say this. Those 14 points, if you were to read them, and I'm not going to take the time today, were a statement of Presbyterian, not Baptist doctrine. There's nothing in there about important things like baptism, the Lord's Supper, church, and other things that are fundamental doctrines of the scripture. The fundamentalist movement further diminished what they called essential doctrine, to five main points. And I've covered them before on this this uh, broadcast. But these five points, when you read them, were written so weakly that even Catholics and Mormons can agree to them. They left the door open to just about any kind of belief on the issues. We're not to follow five... Or even fourteen precepts of God were to follow all of them. Listen to what it says in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. It says And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. I want you to notice two things. First of all, it says all power. That means Christ has all power and nobody else has any power unless they receive uh, it from him. I want you to remember that when Satan wanted to go after Job, he had to go to God and get permission. So all the things we uh, see happening today that uh, the devil is behind, we need to remember that the devil has to get his permission from God before he can do it. But for our subject here, I want you to notice that it says teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. All things, not just 14 things, not just five things, but all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Their stated purpose was to keep the unity of the faith and the bond of peace, rising above all sectarian uh, prejudices and denominational bigotry. Notice that they reduced Bible doctrine to prejudices. They also uh, called those who hold to biblical doctrine bigots. If you insist on scriptural baptism or scriptural church membership or or conducting the Lord's Supper the way it was said and for the purpose it was in the New uh, Testament, we are called bigots. They sacrificed biblical doctrine on the altar of unscriptural unity and then they called it fundamentalism. What would have stopped this fundamentalist movement from ever beginning in the first place? If they had followed biblical reasoning instead of human reasoning, we would have never had the fundamentalist movement. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. If they had marked those who held false doctrine, they would have not had the, the movement and in, then in second uh, thessalonians chapter three and verse six it says now we command you brethren in the name of our lord jesus christ that ye redraw, withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us and then in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, If any man obey not the word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Most of those who were involved in the fundamentalist movement and wrote the articles that they called the, the fundamentals, those men held doctrinal error. And what does this tell us we're supposed to do? I'm not talking about the fact that these people were Christians or not Christians. I'm not saying they weren't saved. I'm not saying they weren't good men, but they held false doctrine. And These uh, scriptures right here say that we're supposed to uh, avoid them. First of all, they had the wrong definition of the church. Anglican bishop, now that's Church of England or or Episcopalian folks, uh, but Anglican bishop John Riles wrote an article in the Fundamentals on what he called the true church. He began the article with the question, do you belong to the one true church? Now, that question is not a scriptural question because there isn't just one true church, as we'll we'll see. He did not support the position with any scripture. Why? It's very simple. There is no scripture to support that doctrine. The word translated church means a local assembly of people who are called out of their homes to meet together and conduct some sort of business. Now that is the word that Jesus chose to uh, call what he was going to build. It implies that there are requirements for membership. Another very important thing is if it does not assemble, it is not an assembly. It is not an ecclesia, which is the Greek word, and it is not a New Testament church. The word church is used in three different ways in Scripture. The first and the most common is of a single local church, and it's translated church. Another way that it's used is for multiple local churches in an area. And it is never singular. It is always plural when it's used in that sense. We have a tendency to say the church in America, but that's not the way it's uh, found in the Bible. In the Bible, it says the churches of Galatia. So when it was talking about more than one church, it was plural, indicating that there is no such thing as just a one church, and there can't be. And then there's the institutional sense of using a word. This probably is the hardest one to understand. So let me give you an example of this from Scripture. In Ephesians 5.23, it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, a lot of people think that's talking about the, the universal church in that passage because it says the church but let me point something out it says the husband is the head of the wife now do we really believe that the husband means some big universal husband and that it's only talking about one is the same true of the wife no the institutional sense of a word uses the singular to mean all of those in a given class And in this passage of Scripture, we have husband, wife, church, and body are all used in the institutional sense. The husband is every husband. The wife is every wife. And the church is every church. And the church is the body. And the church is a local assembly. Stop and think about it, folks. The, the word that's translated church means a local assembly. A body is a local assembly. When well, my father was using a saw one day and cut off one of his fingers that finger was no longer part of that body because it was not joined together. The, the body has to be joined together in a functional unit to be a body, and that's the same as a church. If you want to know more information on this subject, you can see my book, Universal Church, Fact or Fiction. You can get it on my website, uh, Solid Foundation Ministries, if you're interested in it. Bishop Ryle implies that that our churches, that's the church I belong to, the church you belong to, are not true churches. This makes biblical separation from other Christians who hold false doctrine very difficult. You can't put them out of the church. The Bible clearly teaches that if somebody holds false doctrine, we're to put them out of the church. Not because they're not Christians, but we're put them out of the church to make them ashamed so that they will correct their course and come back in. God only has one headquarters on earth to carry out his work today. And the only organization that God placed on this earth to do that work is the local New Testament church. The universal church cannot do what the church is supposed to do. Listen to this passage of scripture from Ephesians chapter 5 excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. How can a universal church, where all the members have different doctrines, come into the unity of the faith. That means come into a unity concerning what the Bible teaches, and not just on 14 principles, not just on five principles, but on the whole of doctrine. Those who are supposed to be members of this universal church can't even agree on how a person's saved. So how in the world can there be unity of faith based on that fact? Another thing that rises out of this false universal church doctrine is the parachurch or outside the church ministries. God only left one organization on the face of this earth to carry out his work during the church age, and that is the local New Testament church. Parachurch organizations are extra biblical. In other words, they're not found in the scriptures. You know what that means? That means they have no scriptural authority to exist. They are robbing the resources of the church. Money is given to these organizations that could be given to the local church to reach the gospel or to spread out the gospel and reach the people in their area. It's it's stolen from them, and we need to stop giving to those ministries. I'm not saying those ministries don't do good things. The Great Commission was not given to this supposed universal church. The Great Commission was given to a local church, and a local church is the only one that can carry it out. Let me ask you, can you go to the pastor of the universal church when you want to get married? No, because the church doesn't exist. Can you go there when you're suffering? Can you go there for prayer? No, there's no pastor. Uh, Can you assemble together with the universal church? No, and we are commanded to assemble together. All of these things cannot be done, and it is drawing away from the New Testament church, which is a local assembly, and it's leading to all kinds of error because we cannot disfellowship those who are truly born again but hold false doctrine. Another thing that's come out of this uh, fundamentalist movement is the judge not. Since we all come together and we put aside our doctrine for those five essential doctrines that they describe, we're not allowed to judge other people. Now that comes from a a misinterpretation of of a passage of scripture it's uh, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1 it says judge not that you be not judged but if you read that in the context it's not telling you not to be judge because we're going to see that we're commanded to judge but it's telling you not to judge somebody who has a mote in their eye when you have a beam in your eye but once you get the beam out of your eye read the context then you can go back and take the mote out of the other person's eye but how can you even know the mote is there without judging this idea of judge not totally ignores the fact that the scriptures tell us that we are to judge listen to this passage of scripture from first corinthians chapter 2 and verse th- uh, 15 it says but he that is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is judged of no man that means that they judge they examine they they take a close look at all things and then in john chapter 7 verse 24 it says judge not according to appearance but judge righteous judgment do those two passages of scripture sound like the bible tells us not to judge Obviously not, but they're telling us uh, that we're to examine all things. We are to examine them according to righteousness. Where do we find that? In the scriptures. We compare everything with the scriptures. I just mentioned parachurch organizations, those organizations outside the church, they have no scriptural authority. I'm not saying they're not good ministries, I'm not saying they're not doing good things, I'm not saying the people behind them are not saved, I'm not saying any of that kind of stuff. But I want us to understand that the decisions we're supposed to make are not supposed to be on what things look like, but what the scripture says about things. How do you know that you're not to keep company with those who cause division if you don't judge what others are doing? Now, you don't judge the person. We can't say whether a person's saved or not. We can say they don't look like they're saved, but we're not talking about that kind of thing. We're talking about people who are good people, who who are attempting to follow the Word of God, but we can't judge uh, their salvation, but we can examine or judge what they do and make decisions and statements based upon that very thing. Something I'd like to say here before I uh, get to the end of this broadcast is Romans uh, 16 verse 17 which I read in the beginning tells us to mark and, uh, and withdraw from those who cause division We need to understand who those who uh, who cause division are. They're not the people who stick to the old paths. When we're going down a path, the the path that's laid out in Scripture, following sound doctrine, doing things the Bible way, not just in, in our doctrine but in our practice, when we're doing that and somebody comes along and says, oh, we don't have to do that anymore. We can take this turn off and go on this new path. Who's doing the dividing? Who's separating there? It's the ones who are making the changes that are the dividers. It's not the fundamental Bible believer who sticks to the old path, who is faithful and steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. It's the one who turns off the path that's the divider. The divider is the one who says, well, you know, I know we used to do it that way, but we don't have to because the, uh, we can follow whatever we want. He's the one who keeps saying, oh, well, the Bible says, but... He's the one who who says, well, the Bible says this, but this is what it really means. It doesn't mean what it says. Those are the dividers. And I, I might add, it's those who are going after the new Bible versions that are also the dividers. The King James Bible was the word of God and accepted as such from uh, 1611 until the late 1800s when they started coming out with the new Bible versions. And now we have, I understand there are over 120 new Bible versions. Uh, Bible Gateway has about 62 Bible versions, if I recall correctly. And they all say different things. And when you go after the ones that say all say different things, you notice that compromise has set in. Christians are not what they used to be. Pastors are not preaching what they uh, used to peach, preach. And by the way, pastors, let me warn you, if you try and keep it positive all the time, which obviously in this message I'm not doing, if you try and keep it positive all the time, you're violating the principles that we see in Scripture. Jesus didn't keep it positive all the time when he called them hypocrites and snakes and whited sepulchers and things like that and if you keep it positive you are robbing your people of things that they need to know but that's just a little rant on the side of something i go uh, i'm dealing with right now in in my life uh, those who want to keep it positive uh, i've heard too many preachers get up there and preach and they they feel like they have to say something negative, and they apologize for being negative. Don't apologize. You always have to start with the negative so they can understand the positive. That's the way electricity flows. That's the way everything flows. It goes from negative to positive. You've got to share everything with your people. Let me ask you a question. Do you preach a lot on the love of God? Well, that's a good subject. There's nothing wrong with preaching on it. We should. The Bible is a love letter from beginning to end. However, how much time do you spend preaching on the wrath of God? Do you preach on heaven? How much time do you spend preaching on hell? If you search the scriptures, you'll find that Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. You see what I'm getting at, folks? We need to get back to doing things the Bible way, not doing it the way we want. And we're dividing from the old-time religion, the old-time way of seeing things when we take the negative out and keep everything positive when we follow new paths and we go after so well I got to have new scriptures because I can't understand the old let me tell you something folks without the Holy Spirit you can't understand the scriptures no matter how we downplay things I downgrade the language and things like this you you can't understand the scriptures without the Holy Spirit anyway let me kind of start bringing this thing to an end first of all we need to understand That the fundamentalist movement began with a committee of interdenominational leaders who determined what the fundamental doctrines were, based not on what the Bible said, but based upon what they could agree on. If they couldn't agree with a doctrine, if there was a doctrine like baptism or, or, or how a person saved or or how we do the Lord's Supper or what the Lord's Supper means or what the church, if they couldn't agree on that, they just classify that as a non-essential doctrine. Let me ask you a question. Who is better to decide what essential doctrine is? A group of men who can't agree on doctrine and who didn't, determine what doctrine was in the first place, or the God who wrote the Bible and put those doctrines in the Bible because he thought we needed them. There is no such thing as non-essential biblical doctrine. Oh, it's true. There are doctrines that are not essential to our salvation. If that wasn't the case, then those who believe false doctrine would all be lost, and that's not the case. Some of them are very good people. They're saved. I mean, some of the finest Christians I know hold false doctrine. And uh, I'm sorry that they can't see what they're doing, but that is the fact. You know, there used to be a bumper sticker that you uh, saw a lot. It seems to me like I saw one recently, but... uh, You don't see it like you did back in the 70s and 80s. And it said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Folks, let me tell you something. That describes the fundamentalist movement to a T. It says, God said it, but it's not settled until I believe it. Let me tell you a little secret. If God said it, it is settled Whether you believe it or not, whether I believe it or not, it doesn't matter. God said it. That's the final word on the subject. We need to understand that. We need to understand that once God says it, it is essential and it is settled and we don't have to go looking for something else. By the way, while I'm on that subject, let me say something. When you come to a passage of scripture and you say, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. It means what it says. So if you don't understand it, it means a couple of things. It means you may not be ready for it yet, uh, and the Holy Spirit's not in your mind to it. It may be that you don't understand English well enough to understand what's being said. But you have to remember that words have meaning. My daughter's always saying, Papa, you taught us that words have meaning. And they do. And what it says is what it means. Who invented language in the first place? It's God. Just find out what those words really mean in their context and you'll be okay. Folks, we should not get caught up in movements. Movements always lead to compromise because they are put together by men. We should be faithful people who base all of what we do and think on what God has told us in his word. We need to get back to what God says. The fundamentalist movement was based upon uh, putting aside Bible doctrine so we can agree. Human reasoning says that uh, the larger of a force you have to go after the bad guys, the better chance you have of winning. But is that what the Bible teaches? I would like to point something out. Gideon put together a pretty good-sized army. And what did God tell him? And they were going back... uh, over a hundred thousand Syrians are going to attack them. And, and God said, no, you've got too many people. So send all those who are afraid home, let them go home. And they went home and God says, you still have too many people. And he told them to go down and, and uh, to the brook and drink and pay attention to how they drank and choose uh, who was going to go uh, when they, when they went to uh, defend themselves against uh, their enemies. And, It ended up he only had 300 people to go against over 100,000 enemy troops. And then God did something else. He says, I want you to use some pretty stupid weapons. So I want you to take your sword, but I want you to go out there with a pitcher, with a candle in it, and a trumpet. All your people, give them a trumpet, a pitcher with a candle in it, and go out there and surround the enemy. And then, when I tell you to, you break the pitcher and start blowing on your trumpet. And that so scared the enemy that the enemy started killing one another, not knowing who they were fighting against. And they were able to, to come in there and defeat this army and chase them out of their land and things. So, folks, it's not the size that matters. It's the faithfulness to God's principles. We don't defeat the encroachment of modernism and liberalism by discarding doctrine. That actually leads to liberalism. We do it by holding fast to what God said. Listen to this one last verse, 1 Timothy 1.9. It says, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, folks, that's under the qualification of a pastor, but it's good advice to every single one of us. So, folks, let's not get caught up in movements. Let's be fundamental Bible believers, and that means we believe what the Bible says and we do what it says. You have been listening to Solid Foundation Ministries from Lenore, North Carolina. Dr. Coovert has 35 years in the ministry as a former missionary and pastor. He is available for revivals and various conferences on missions, Bible, Baptist heritage, and the family. To find out more, go to our website, solidfoundationministries.com, or call 828 828- Two four four six five zero five. Remember, the Christian life is not about you. It's about God receiving the glory.